Hello, electorate listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner. The midterm elections are just around the corner, and it's down to the wire. But there's still so much work to do, starting with the House. If we flip just 23 districts in the House, we will take back the majority. In the past few weeks, there have been attacks on the LGBTQ community, attacks on the press, ongoing attacks and misinformation about immigration, children being ripped from their families, and billionaire tax cuts. And the list goes on and on. But if we can manage to flip just 23 districts, we can finally put a check on President Trump, his regressive administration, and these harmful policies. Because we know that this is not what democracy is supposed to look like. But that's how it works with Trump and the conservatives controlling the House of Representatives. And our only choice is to vote them all out and flip the House in the midterms this year. Think about how great that would feel to finally elect progressive candidates who will hold Trump and his corrupt administration accountable. So I urge you to please get engaged now because it's going to take everyone. Join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash electorate to find a nearby swing district. This is the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. Everybody who wants to take a stand must do more than vote this year. You must volunteer. So join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Sign up now at swingleft.org slash electorate. That's swingleft.org slash E-L-E-C-T-O-R-E-T-T-E. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, gender justice and the anti-transgender memo. Isn't that nice? Last week, a leaked memo was uncovered by the New York Times, and it's being referred to as the trans memo or the anti-transgender memo. And that memo revealed that the Trump administration was considering narrowly defining the concept of gender under Title IX as being a biological immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth. Now, this is an incredible regression for the advances made by the transgender community over the past several years. Unlike many of the decisions made by this administration, it's a complete reversal of decisions made by the Obama administration. In this episode, I talk with Christy Hall. She's an attorney for gender justice, and that's a nonprofit dedicated to addressing issues around gender inequality. And I also talk with Megan Peterson. She's the executive director of Gender Justice. They join me to discuss the legal implications of this memo. So here's Christy Hall, the staff attorney at Gender Justice, explaining exactly what the memo is proposing. Yeah, so uh, I mean, the thing that the memo is essentially threatening to do is use the executive branch's authority to uh, write regulations about the enforcement of civil rights laws to use a really narrow definition and illogical definition of sex that would eliminate protections uh, in federal civil rights laws for transgender folks. Are there legal definitions for gender and sex already? Uh, There may be in some contexts, but I mean, the thing to know here, I guess, as a background is there's been a history of over the past, um, you know, decade or and more of uh, civil rights law victories. I mean, it used to be the conventional wisdom was that transgender people aren't protected in federal civil rights laws because those federal civil rights laws protect people on the basis of sex, but they don't use, you know, gender identity. They don't use sexual orientation or things like that explicitly. They say sex, that's the word that they use. 
And that's not defined in the statute itself, or if it is, it's it's uh, defined in a way that leaves open the possibility, which the courts have used to interpret that to include, you know, uh, sexual orientation, uh, gender identity. And basically, that means that under federal civil rights laws, if you interpret sex broadly, which makes sense, then you can protect a lot more people and you can protect people on the basis of their gender identity, even though, you know, the law doesn't specify that in the text of the statute. This is Megan. I would just add that a lot of the case law that's developed around understanding discrimination based on sex also, you know, really focuses on um, sex stereotypes. What are expectations and stereotypes related to sex? And of course, that is, you know, often shows up in terms of gender expression, you know, women who don't behave in a way that a woman might be expected to behave you know, those are sex stereotypes. And um, a lot of times that's the basis for understanding whether there was discrimination or not. It's like, is this individual not conforming with these gender or sex expectations? And so I think too, you know, while that primarily comes out of Title VII, which, which protects people against discrimination in employment, it almost makes us kind of comical in a way because these attempts to even more narrowly define what sex is actually only make it that much more obvious that really when we're talking about discrimination, we are talking about where where people are not conforming to these like cultural societal expectations and ideas. And of course, transgender individuals, especially, that's just like common sense. It's like, if you're discriminating against me because I'm transgender, it's because I'm very explicitly rejecting what you think my sex or gender is or should be. It's also a little confounding that they think this is going to stand up or is going to work. Right. So just help me understand this again from a legal perspective. So I think what I'm understanding is that there is, it's this void that's causing the problem, right? So if they define it as either male or female and anything else outside of that or between that is excluded, that void is what they're taking advantage of. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, I think that's accurate, right? Right. They're, first of all, they're forcing everybody into one of those two boxes, right? Male or female. And they're defining it, at least according to this memo, um, like dispositive evidence is what what's listed on your original birth certificate. Um, and, um, you know, so there's that. But I think, you know, the background here is that it just really strikes back at case law that's been developing over decades that defines not only sex, but sex discrimination, right? So sex discrimination has been broadly defined in court case law to include, you know, like Megan was saying, discrimination because somebody is not fitting a gender role that somebody else thinks they should be fitting. The case law here goes back to a a really famous Supreme Court case, Price Waterhouse, that talks about sex discrimination, including uh, discrimination against, you know, a woman who was an accountant who was told to dress more femininely um, and be less assertive or aggressive 
so that she could get a promotion. The Supreme Court said that's sex discrimination and that's forbidden. It's not only redefining sex, it's redefining sex discrimination. So there are a couple of other cases that are important here, I think. And you can tell me whether they are or not and how this Mm -hmm. relates. There's Tovar versus Essentia and Rumble versus Fairview. Those were your cases. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So I think, you know, both of these cases are actually about a relatively new statute that comes from the Affordable Care Act. Um, So the Affordable Care Act, in addition to all of the stuff about insurance coverage and the exchanges and expanded Medicaid coverage and that sort of thing, it also included this anti-discrimination law that's known as Section 1557, and it prohibits discrimination in providing health care which is, you know, an area that wasn't sex discrimination in healthcare was not prohibited by any federal law before that. And so it's it's been very important, you know, to people working like gender justice, working to eradicate gender discrimination or sex discrimination to use this law. Uh, and particularly, one of the ways that we've used it is to provide protections for transgender people and both the Rumble case and the Tovar case are about gender discrimination against transgender individuals. In the Rumble case, it involves negative experience in a in a hospital, somebody who was mistreated because of their gender identity. In the Tovar case, it's about insurance coverage, whether insurance coverage that expressly excludes anything related to gender confirmation uh, or treatment for gender dysphoria, you know, whether insurance coverage that excludes that kind of care is discriminatory. So, and in both of those cases, we had judges take a look. And again, the question is, what does this term sex discrimination mean? And because of the way section 1557 is written, it actually borrows from older case law for Title IX, which is the educational discrimination law, which also, you know, courts look at then at Title VII, what the uh, employment discrimination law says. And so it's this case law that has developed over the years and all three of these statutes, you know, the employment discrimination federal law, the education discrimination federal law, and now this new healthcare discrimination, this new law that prohibits discrimination in healthcare based on sex. And so in all of these instances, and courts look at what courts in the past, how courts in the past have defined sex discrimination, and have said, you know, if people aren't getting medically necessary care that's targeted at only trans folks, Um, If that exclusion is targeted at care that only transgender folks need, then that's illegal because sex discrimination is prohibited. So I think both of these cases, the judge in Tovar and the judge in the Rumble case, agreed that transgender people and gender identity were protected categories under this healthcare anti-discrimination law. And I I would just add, it's one of the reasons why this effort by the Trump administration, although it's, you know, coming out of the Department of Ed and is, you know, talking about how gender is defined under Title IX. It has broader implications than that because of the fact that all these civil rights laws you know, kind of rely on each other in the interpretation, especially in the case of Section 1557, it directly relies on Title IX. So like Christy said, so I think, it, you know, it's scary on multiple levels that they're going down this path. Right. So uh, I just want a practical example of something that someone might experience 
right now without the memo in place, right, without the proposal in place, let's say for healthcare under the Rumble ruling, what might someone experience now in comparison to what they might experience later if they were to succeed? Yeah, so I think probably one of the major issues is actually insurance coverage. Advocates have made a lot of progress over the past decade in making sure that transgender people have gender-affirming care available to them that's covered by insurance. It definitely, you know, you could go back even four years and it was by far the majority of healthcare plans that people had just had a blanket exclusion on any kind of gender-affirming care. And that meant that a lot of trans folks weren't able to afford the medical care that their doctors were saying they needed. And that has been changing in large part because of this law and because of the court interpretations that include protections for transgender people in these federal anti-discrimination laws. So if the Trump administration gets its way, if they're able to redefine sex in the regulations for Section 1557 or for Title IX and then you know, Section 1557 would borrow from it, then that means that we're going to potentially looking at going backwards on the insurance coverage front, insurance companies, third-party administrators, employers that provide health insurance will no longer have to include coverage for this. I think you'll get a lot of companies that will just drop this coverage and, you know, we'll go back to, you know, a place that we'd thought we'd hopefully left behind where, you know, trans people aren't able to get the medical care that their doctors say they need because it's unaffordable and insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah, you know, actually, I I do remember it wasn't very long ago when you would hear stories of people suffering because they couldn't afford, you know, they had to pay out of pocket for, you know, gender affirming surgery and, you know, all the medications that would come along with that, right? I mean, it would cost, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think we want to be clear too that although there has been a lot of progress, it certainly is not the case that there is uniform compliance or coverage uh, now. You know, plenty of transgender individuals are still experiencing denials and carve-outs and, you know, issues with obtaining the care that they and their doctor has determined uh, is medically necessary and appropriate. So we've seen a lot of progress in cases like Tovar and Rumble and others around the country are all, you know, moving in the right direction to keep pushing us towards their really being full access to healthcare people that people need. But we're not entirely there yet. So things like the memo are, I think, very much intended to push back on the forward progress that we've been making. Yeah, but it sounds like it puts into law the ability to discriminate, right? It legalizes the ability to discriminate. Well, it's an interpretation by this administration of what the law means. So they're not writing a new law. They are proposed, right, you know, the memo is proposing that there be regulations that represent the administration's interpretation of law. So that is powerful and meaningful, and yet is not itself a law. And in and of itself does not undo the decisions that judges have made it in different parts of the country interpreting the law differently. So, you know, it's, it's a process and it's a dance. Yeah, it, it, it is definitely a step backwards. And yet it is not something that has the power to like undo all the progress that we've made either. Okay, so and, and you guys have to bear with me understanding the legal stuff. I But I'm not, you know, an attorney. So 
Please, if I'm being hey, I'm, I'm not I'm not an attorney either, so don't worry. I totally get it. If I'm being repetitive, because I'm just trying to wrap my brain around what are the practical implications. And when people say the transgender community is going to be erased, what does that mean in practical terms, in legal terms? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, I think in practical terms that it, it's... It's about the danger that sowing this, the seeds of this idea that people's identity doesn't exist, you know, having the federal government come out and say, no, there's only one version of sex and and gender identity, and, and it is the genitalia you're born with end of story. You know, I think the response from the community of we won't be erased is really just around, yeah, how how harmful that is for it to be a part of the public narrative and discussion when transgender people are already so targeted and marginalized and experience so much violence and discrimination. It's, It's like the federal government saying like, yeah, that's okay with us. That looks good. And so it's a lot about the tone it sets. It's a lot about the kind of expectations it puts out into the world about how people based on looking at their own government should understand gender identity. And so it creates harm beyond the law itself in in just in terms of that, you know, broader national discussion that we're engaged in that overall, I think, has a lot of positive elements and forward momentum of people really coming to understand that gender is far more fluid and complex than people may have believed, you know, even a generation ago. And we have seen a lot of progress on that front. And this uh, effort from the administration is just so obviously like this attempt to reinstate this arcane, outdated understanding that is totally targeted towards, yeah, giving people the license to discriminate or to see transgender people as other in a really dangerous way. To put it in a really simple way, I mean, it just seems like they're just pretending as if these people just don't exist, especially when you think about the intersex community, right? Yes. Intersex people are the most obvious place where it's clear that this memo shows the total disconnect from reality that the administration is is functioning within. It's totally in line with their denial of science and like science-based reality. You know, they want to believe that sex is so easily defined and whatever you want to debate about gender identity and, and transgender people's experience, you know, life experience and what that tells them about their sex and gender, you really don't have to look any farther than intersex people and, and babies who are born with ambiguous genitalia every day. And it is, you know, talk to any doctor who works in birth and every single one of them will have experienced helping to deliver a baby with ambiguous genitalia. Like it is not so rare that you know, there's only a few people who, who exist or who have experienced like it is this is this is a relatively common situation where doctors are not able to determine at birth on site sex based only on genitalia. And so uh, that alone blows up the entire premise for this discussion. And then the administration's kind of backup plan is genetic testing, which again you only have to look at the experience of intersex people to know that genetic testing is not a fail-safe determiner of a binary, you know, sexual identity. So many intersex people actually have more complicated genetic markers for sex. XXY is a very common intersex genetic expression. And so, yeah, it's it's galling also on that level. Like, 
hello, science has known this for quite some time. Are you just trying to pretend that that entire area of, of lived reality doesn't exist? It's kind of unbelievable. Yeah, I, I agree with that because, I mean, and that's what makes the assertion in the memo that this is grounded in science so offensive and absurd. Yeah, yeah no, I just could, I completely agree. I mean, you know, one of the things that has encouraged the courts to go down this path of recognizing sex and gender identity and things like that is because the scientific understanding is far more complex. So you get legal decisions that recognize that gender and sex are not just binary categories categories, that there are a number of different factors that make up a person's sex, including their gender identity, and that that it's not a simplistic you are this or you are that, because those genetic markers, hormones, visible genitalia, internal genitalia, all of those kinds of things, they don't match up with each other in every single case, like the Trump administration would like to pretend. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about HHS. Caitlin Oakley, who's the, who's the HHS spokesperson, she came out you know, after news of the leaked memo came out, blaming and I'm not really sure how this argument could logically be made, but blaming the Obama administration. Have you read that? I haven't read that statement specifically, but I definitely have heard, you know, this this idea of blaming the Obama administration for like there being extra litigation on this front, right? Or blaming the Obama administration's interpretation for causing confusion. And it's just ludicrous because the Obama administration merely recognized what had been going on in the courts for decades. You know, they acknowledged the reality that the majority of courts across the country are interpreting the word sex in these anti-discrimination laws in this broader way. And they just acknowledge that. And that is what the administrative agencies are supposed to do. You know, when they're putting out regulations and things like that, they examine the case law. Uh, the Obama administration didn't create anything. Um, this is, you know, came out of activist movements and legal advocacy that's been going on for a long time. Um, and the Obama administration is actually recognizing the reality when they when they uh, wrote their regulations for Section 1557 that were inclusive and that defined um, sex broadly. Um, you know, they were recognizing reality rather than creating confusion. This the Trump administration, you know, efforts here are an attempt to ignore reality, both scientific reality and legal reality. You know, I think that there is a red flag when Roger Severino was appointed to the head of HHS. I mean, that must have been a red flag to the LGBTQ community. Yeah, to have him head up the Office for Civil Rights for the Department of Health and Human Services was really a slap in the face. He was, you know, one of the leading figures speaking out against the way that the Obama administration in drafting the original regulations for Section 1557, you know, did look at the scientific realities and the legal realities. And, you know, he spoke out about that when he was uh, a private citizen and, and, you know, not in a position of power or authority over these kinds of questions. And so appointing him as the head of the Office for Civil Rights really sent a signal that they wanted to go backwards. Right. He was on the staff of the Heritage Foundation, I think, before this. And, you know, he's been really openly opposed to transgender rights and same-sex marriage and and Planned Parenthood. I mean, this isn't a secret. So he is the worst person. Yes. To be at the helm of this. 
Yeah, yeah. It's part of, I guess, a pattern, you know, at least that I see with the Trump administration, which is, you know, appoint the people to head agencies that actually despise what that agency does. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So is there any precedent for doing this the right way, right? Because I, I, I mean, from my understanding, the Obama administration put some protections in place, but there is a lack of solidity there. Do you know what I mean? Is there any legal precedent in any country that you can think of that has done this right, where the protections are solid and unchangeable? That's a good question. I guess I'm not aware of how the anti-discrimination protections for trans people, how that's gone in other countries. And I'm not familiar with that. I think, you know, just like with many things in our court system, in our legal system, in our political system, there's just kind of like a, a march of forward progress that just gets occasionally halted, occasionally turned backwards, you know, before it starts up again in the right direction. And I think that's just a reality of the way that our system works. Yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking, for instance, a good comparison would be gun laws in Australia, for instance, right? And there are Mm -hmm. other countries that get some other things right that we just aren't there yet. You know, New Zealand, I think, had legalized gay marriage long before we had, I think. (laughs) And, you know, there are other countries that we can use as, as templates. And I think this is one where there isn't much for us to look at. Right. I mean, I've asked this question before and I I don't have an example. So, you know, if we were to get this right, we could actually set a precedent, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, I think hopefully that's a place that we would want to have as a country in the world is being the example that others look to. Right. Not the example that others say, oh, that's a cautionary tale and we don't want to do what they've done. (laughs) What would be ideal with something like, you know, Roe v. Wade, where it's it's left up to the individual to make that determination? Would that be ideal or, or what would it look like? So I think there are a couple of different options here. I mean, I think obviously a Supreme Court decision that comes down and defines gender broadly, like we're not giving up on that goal. <laughs> I don't know how, how realistic that goal looks given the makeup of the Supreme Court today. Um, I think another option, though, is, you know, there have been proposed legislative changes um, that would clarify this issue, you know, that gender justice is supported and that will hopefully gain traction in um, a new Congress after the start of the new year. You know, I know there are a number of different ways to approach this. And, you know, I think, you know, any one of those paths could potentially work out as a way to protect trans people. You know, one of the things that is important is that, you know, we do have a system where states, you know, in in anti-discrimination laws at the federal level across the board, the federal government sets a floor, but states can protect people more than the federal anti-discrimination laws do. So, for example, here in Minnesota, people have been protected on the basis of their gender identity explicitly in our state human rights law since 1993. And there's more that states can do to push back against changes at the federal level. And, you know, in addition to that, as advocates, we are continuing to use the federal courts to make our point. You know, we just had you know, one of the arguments in the Tovar case, which is a pretty recent decision, uh, I think it's from 
I don't remember whether it was August or September that we got that decision, uh, but it's pretty recent. Um, and the defendants had argued, you know, look at these changes at the federal level and the shift in administration and, and you know, that sort of thing to try to say, oh, it's okay to discriminate against trans people now. And the court said, no, no, it's not. Um, so the courts will continue to be a backstop to things that the Trump administration tries to do. Right. Well, he is also trying to pack the courts with conservative judges. So that's also a risk. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. We have to continue to be vigilant on that. Let's say an individual who's listening to this has trouble with work discrimination or something, you know, or maybe trying to change the sex or gender on their passport or they come up against some form of discrimination. What can they do? So the first thing that they should do probably is reach out to advocates in their state. There are lots of organizations in states all over the country that look to assist people with this. You know, I am in a network of lawyers across the country. And when these kinds of issues come to us, we post and say, hey, you know, do you know somebody in, you know, Texas that can assist with a passport issue? Um, So if they reach out to like their state level advocates, a lot of times they can get connected to the people that can help them. What sometimes is challenging is trying to capture both what we all should rightly be so outraged about, which there's so much about this memo for us to be outraged about, and it is an attack, and it is extremely offensive and harmful, and also to, you know, retain that you know, knowledge that they don't have the be all end all say (laughs) that the work that we are doing and continue to do to get, you know, case law precedent establishing a different interpretation still really matters and that there's still a lot of, uh, of hope for that to continue moving forward, regardless of how the administration might want to take us back. So I want people to hold that complexity that this is terrible and it is not the final say. Well, Megan Christie, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thank you for listening. I'll include links for gender justice as well as links to other resources mentioned during this episode in the show notes. Also, stay tuned for part two of my coverage of the anti-transgender proposals made by the Trump administration. Also, remember midterms are just over one week away. Don't forget to vote on November 6th. And if you can, vote early. If you're looking for ways to volunteer, please visit swingleft.org slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>